Sad news from overnight. Frank Q. Jackson, the grandson of Mayor Frank Jackson, who had been in plenty of trouble over the past few years, has been killed by gunshots. The latest example of Cleveland's gun violence. A tough one for the mayor, who clearly had a soft spot for this grandson. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Lisa Garvin, Leila Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And you just got a feel for the mayor on this one. I don't know that any other mayor in America has been so closely touched by the violence that has become epidemic in big cities. Yeah, this uh, this news took my breath away last night. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I was stunned. Couldn't believe it. I, I My condolences to the mayor and his family. I'm so sad to hear that, that it ended this way. Well, they, and they kept trying. I mean, the kid had had multiple chances and they, and you could tell the family was trying to right. save him from the streets. But ultimately, when, you know, the mayor lives in the central neighborhood. These kids are there. Uh, I'm sure we'll get more details. But man, I just I do. I feel for him. I mean, he's what a few months away from ending 16 years of service to the city and this violence problem that remains out of control takes somebody that was very dear to him. Let's begin. Is the formal entrance of Matt Dolan into the U.S. Senate race in Ohio the game changer we've been looking for? The candidate who will stand apart from Donald Trump and make this about a battle for the soul of the Ohio Republican Party. Laura Johnston, this is good news. I was starting to think he wasn't going to get in. Yeah, and this happened late last night. Andrew Tobias, uh, one of our statehouse reporters, spotted it. He changed his Twitter status or Twitter bio. You had to do a really close read to be able to get this, but he updated his official website, dolanforohio.com, and his social media pages to drop the references of his exploratory committee and replace them with new graphics. And his bios describe him as a U.S. Senate U.S. Senate candidate. So. Matt Dolan's a longtime state legislator. He's currently in the Ohio Senate and term limited. And yeah, he's the only person to have some distance between himself and Trump. All the other Republicans running are kind of competing to be the Trumpiest. Not kind of, fully. They're they're (laughs) full sycophants. It has been really disgusting to watch these people that want to be one of our two senators invest all of their time and energy in in pleasing this kind of monstrous human being instead of Ohioans. That's why the Matt Dolan thing is is big. Matt Dolan is a true conservative. He's what the Republicans were before Donald Trump came along and hijacked the whole party. You know, and we saw the biggest effect of that in Ohio with the the departure from the political scene of Anthony Gonzalez, who's not going to seek another term in Congress. So Matt Dolan's the hope for all of those Republicans that that despise Trump and want their party back. It, I do think he will get huge support from the Cleveland business community, which has been telling the other Senate candidates, we don't want somebody who is Trumpy. We don't want somebody that's bowing down to the former president who almost derailed democracy. We want somebody else. Well, that's Matt Dolan. It's just, can he win elsewhere in the state? Yeah. Uh, it'll, go ahead. That's- that's a big question. So I think the fact that he hasn't supported Trump is going to be a big issue in the race. He tweeted in January that truth matters and too many so-called leaders perpetuated lies about the outcome of the November 2020 election. And when you have the rest of the candidates and a whole swath of the Republican Party believing that the election was stolen and that January 6th riot was some kind of patriot, you know, something to be lauded, then 
And yeah, it's going to depend on where people's heads are. What's also really interesting is, you know, Dolan has a long history of service in the state of Ohio. He also ran for county executive for the very first executive against Fitzgerald, if you remember. So he has good name recognition here. I don't know about the rest of the state, but only one other candidate in this race on the Republican side, Josh Mandel, has actually held office before. I've got to think, though, that somebody that stands up to the poisonous winds to say, I'm my own person, will resonate. I mean, what do you want? Do you want a sniveling sycophant or somebody that stands up with bona fide history of, of, of Republican ideals? I mean, he is what the Republican Party prides itself in being. And I can tell you the, the outpouring we heard from Republicans despondent about Anthony Gonzalez leaving. Ted Dianen had a great column about it over the weekend. Yeah, this this is frightening stuff for them, and they want very much to have the Republican ideals and the and to get rid of Trump once and for all. So the Josh Mandels will be out there, you know, doing all the gross stuff that I, he does on Twitter, and Matt Dolan will be standing firm, saying, "No, that's not what we're about. We're not about evil, nasty things that Josh Mandel says. This is about fiscal conservatism and conservative values." And I think that will play really well to a lot of the electorate. It just wonder you wonder who's going to come out for the primary because those seem to be the most partisan people can sometimes get out of the primary. Except there's so many Trumpians in the race. They might And then all the people that don't want Trump will vote for Dolan and Dolan can can get through. Look, the, the, there are a whole bunch of Democrats that will not like this because the Democrats believe their best play for winning these offices is to have a Josh Mandel. The, they're so extreme. They're so ridiculous that they can't win the mainstream. Maybe they can win a Republican primary, but most people do not want that kind of nonsense. So a Matt Dolan in the race makes it much more likely that a Republican can win it. It's big so news, it's, I guess. It's very heartening to see a sane person. <laughs> right. right. Not, not, look, I use the word sniveling and sycophant, but that's what they are. I mean, yeah. it's it's been gross to watch them bowing down to this guy that exhorted a crowd to derail our entire democracy. Go ahead, Lisa Garvin. No, I was just going to say it'll be interesting to see what kind of endorsements Dolan will draw from within the Ohio legislature. I mean, it, I think that might give us a temperature on what's going on. Hopefully they will line up behind him, but that's yet to be seen. And a big tip of the hat to Andrew Tobias, because it looked like Matt Dolan was trying to make this announcement in some other way today. Andrew got the tip that the announcement was coming, did the work and got the story. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We know that Ohio's Republican leaders violated the Ohio Constitution to create gerrymandered districts. But are the new maps worse or about the same as the maps that drove voters to the polls to change the system over the last decade? Laura Johnston, we didn't dig deep into that until late in the week, and we did come on, come up with what? Yeah, this is as bad or worse than it was before. So it's really frustrating if you think about it. Ohioans in 2015 overwhelmingly voted for new districting rules to reduce gerrymandering, to make the, the lines make sense and to have more competitive districts. But the districts the Republicans passed on Wednesday with no buy-in from Democrats, they do look a little bit better because of the stricter limits, but they are actually slightly less competitive and less politically proportionate than the ones they'll replace. And that's according to Dave's redistricting app, which is a website that looks at the likely 
uh, vote for each area. The 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 thought that the the supermajorities continue is the key. That, right. that I mean, you can you can talk about they're more compact, they're this, they're that, but the supermajorities are preserved. That's what makes them about the same. Yeah, absolutely. So Senate President Matt Huffman says the new maps will likely give Republicans 62 out of 99 House seats, 23 out of 33 Senate seats. Obviously, that's above the 60 percent needed for that veto proof majority. The old maps were about 65 Republican, 23 and Republicans actually control 64 House seats and 25 Senate seats. So but Republicans have only gotten 53 percent of the vote over the past 10 years. So that is much lower than the supermajority would have you believe. Also, these new maps are more likely to, quote, waste votes in Democratic districts, I mean, they're going to pack all the Democrats in fewer concentrated districts rather than spreading them out and making other districts more competitive. Yeah, I, I don't think they're going to stand. And we'll be talking about why in a little bit. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With the filing deadline for Ohio legislative offices being February 2nd, what is the timeline people seeking to challenge Ohio's new gerrymandered districts in court? Lisa Garvin, we know they're gerrymandered. We know that the supermajorities violate the Constitution, and we have a good idea that the Supreme Court just might throw them out this time because of recent trends. But there's not a whole lot of time to get this done. No, time is a wasting, actually. Um, although uh, Catherine Turser with Common Cause said there are no lawsuits yet, but they need some time. Of course, it's one of many groups poised to file a lawsuit. But she says they need some time to study the maps and then figure out who the plaintiffs will be, you know, exactly. Although I can certainly give them a few names. So she's thinking that we may see a lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. I think we know the names on that suit. Um, but I, we may see a lawsuit this week. I certainly hope that we do, because as you stated, February 2nd of 2022 is the filing deadline for uh, running for office for the midterm primaries. Um, but the Ohio Supreme Court will automatically take this up so it doesn't have to work its way through the courts. And apparently the Ohio Supreme Court also has the power to set temporary rules for elections if the deadline is not met. So it is not met. So we'll see how they, this goes. But now for legal challenges to these maps, they have to, if there are six or more violations of the redistricting requirements set out, then the maps must be tossed and redone. If there are less than six violations, then the maps go back to the redistricting commission to redraw. So we'll see how that goes. Well, I can count three right off the bat. They missed right. the constitutional deadline. They admitted they did not include uh, in, in their thinking how the, the districts would break down politically. They also did not think, look at how they break down racially, which that might not be in the Constitution, but that's basically federal law. And they're gerrymandered. They don't represent what Ohioans did in recent voting. I'm sure brighter minds than mine can find other ways that they violated it. Look, it's clear. And I think the Supreme Court will see this. The voters went to the polls in big numbers and said, stop, we don't want this anymore. Do this fairly. And the governor, Mike DeWine, and his cronies on the redistrict commission completely ignored the voters. I mean, we talked last week, and I think we have a story coming out the next couple of days. Was, was what they did enough to have them all removed from office? And you can make a very strong argument that it is. Supreme Court will, will require briefings and statements. What would be interesting is if groups didn't work on this together. 
so that you had multiple lawsuits based <laughs> on different grounds all going in at the same time and you're figuring well, maybe one of these will work uh, but we'll have to see they don't have a much time i mean it's mid it's almost the end of september and uh, this has to get done well before february 2nd because people have to have time to get their signatures although laura johnston you say that they only need a very small number of signatures right they need about 50. So, you know, stand at a street corner for a few minutes. Hopefully you can get there pretty quickly. <laughs> if you can find registered voters True. who don't want to get COVID when you're waving to them and saying, come talk. Okay, to call me. all your friends and your family. Are you allowed to use your family for your, your signatures? If they're registered voters. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Now that the trial of former Cuyahoga County Jail Director Ken Mills is over, what do we know about the general state of county government in the administration of County Executive Armin Budish? Leila Tassi, Corey Schaefer put together one hell of an analysis piece looking at all of the ways this thing broke down. And he kind of gave support to an idea that we ought to reverse part of the charter we created when we reformed county government, what, 12 years ago? That's right. Yeah. he Corey did such a great job covering the Mills trial gavel to gavel recently. And, and, and he put together, like you said, this very thoughtful post-game analysis about how the structure of Cuyahoga County's government really could have, you know, most likely gave rise to Ken Mills's criminal mismanagement of the jail. And at the heart of it is the fact that County Executive Armin Budish gets to pick the sheriff, the sheriff's boss, the jail administrator who works under the sheriff and the budget director who controls the sheriff's purse strings. And and really, that leaves so many people beholden to one person for their job. So when that person tells them to regionalize the jail and monetize it at all costs, none of them is willing to stand up against those orders, even if it's clearly leading to an understaffed facility where inmates are, are living in terrible conditions without access to health care. So, you know, this came out, you know, very clearly during the trial. Sheriff Cliff Pinkney just testified that the structure of government where everyone was appointed by an answer to the executive gave Mills the, the ability to work around Pinckney. Mills could instead go directly to Budish and the budget director, Maggie Keenan, who could overrule any decision Pinckney made. And that's exactly what happened in 2017 when Pinckney and Metro Health and a Metro Health doctor requested money to hire nurses for the jail. And Mills went around him to Keenan and to stop the hiring. And what I thought, you know, what's really interesting, Corey Schaefer had a chance to talk to a, a, juror, a juror on this case, uh, it, kind of your, you know, your average, uh, you know, your average citizen who said that sitting through this trial was so eye opening about local politics. And he lamented that we no longer get to elect the sheriff. And he said he won't ever cast his vote again uh, along party lines, but instead He'll look closely at each candidate. Um, so, except the, the, what bothered me about that is, is he had his head in the mud. I mean, the the, the bad form of this county government and how poorly Armin Budish is executed has been nonstop news. I mean, it's just been nonstop. And I bet if you went back and counted the number of stories we've done saying that, it it would be 150. So it's so to say I'm shocked, shocked to find the county government isn't working. Where the hell have you been? I mean, I, I just not buying that. Look, the sad thing here is when county government was changed, there was oversight built into it, or at least everyone thought in the form of the county council. What what we are learning more and more is the county council doesn't work. They don't do anything. They don't provide any oversight. Right. They had a chance when they appointed the latest sheriff. They had a chance. They started to stiffen their backbone and say, wait a minute, 
you don't answer to Armin Budish. You answer to the people. You answer to us. He gets to pick you, but that's it. And then they cave. They fold it up like like withering fuzz. I mean, it was just they're they're pathetic. It's like one of the worst things we ever did was create this powerless county council. The the most hypocritical story was when the president of county council, following the the conviction, had a press con- or, or set in a meeting, started a meeting by saying, "This is a dark day for Cuyahoga County." Yeah, no kidding. It's a dark day because you never, not once, did your job in regards to the jail. Not once. So if they had done their oversight with all of those officials, if they had been bringing people in to ask them questions and hold hearings about Armin Budish's jail profitability plan, they could have stopped all this. So now we're going to create a Band-Aid. We're going to get all this push to create an independent sheriff because the county council is useless. I mean, really, this should be a debate about should we go back to the old way of doing things where we elect everybody? Because once you elect the sheriff, do you then say, well, we got to elect the auditor because Armand Budish can't run the budget. We have, do we need to elect a treasurer because he doesn't know how to collect taxes? I mean, how many times did they screw that up that we've written about? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you're but, right. I mean, the reason county government was reformed was to avoid corruption, to give voters one person that they could oust from office and take all the other you know, jokers with them and, and, you know, hold, hold them accountable in that way. And then created this check and balance system with county council, but it ended up anointing the county executive with too much power. So if that person, you know, skates through election season, then all the others uh, come, come with that person. So, but, but really, if you look at the county charter, this county council has way more power than the Cleveland city council. Mm -hmm. The county executive has way less power than the Cleveland mayor. They just don't do it. They just collect their paychecks and sit on their hands. I mean, that's the problem is we have elected the worst form of county council leadership. So so what do you do? I mean, if the voters keep sending bad politicians into these jobs, nothing's going to work. You won't have a good treasure because you'll just elect more bums. The the system and and that juror is is the reason, Uh, you know, despite Everything that has come out about Armin Budish and his incompetence, it took this guy being forced to sit through a trial to pay attention. So, so of course we're going to keep <laughs> You're getting blaming this bozos. one guy, this one well, good citizen who came to jury duty. It's his fault. <laughs> well, it, but but if he's sitting there saying, "I had no idea." Well, shame on you. You should have had an idea. When you go to the polls, you're supposed to know what you're talking about, right? Can, yeah, but Large no, one, no one I, does. I, <laughs> I covered county county government for four years, including the new reform, and sat through hours-long hearings when county council first met. And I agree with you, Chris. I'm, they meet a lot. They talk a lot. But they haven't done a lot. And they so, do nothing. Right. And, and they have debate. But it doesn't seem like they're willing to to get, you know, the administration angry. Like they always kind of threaten, like we should have known about this sooner or we should do something about this. But I just don't see them actually standing up, squaring off. But let's let's talk about this jail profitability plan. Armin Budish mm-hmm. decides, oh, I'm going to turn the jail into a profit center. Kind of a loony idea because it's it, it, you're not going to make money on a jail. Jails cost money. But but fine. The county council should have had multiple hearings about that, about the logistics of that. How do you how do you bring all those people in from the other jails? How do you bill other cities for this? So they have you talked to them about the price they're going to have to pay? How do you do food service on that scale? How do you do security on that scale? That That's their job. 
is to is to grill them, not not in a cynical manner, but in an information gathering manner. They didn't do a thing, not a thing. Even when it was breaking down and we were reporting on this, Courtney Astolfi and Adam Faris were the ones that brought out that this was all about profit making. They still didn't do anything. It, it's they've been a disaster. And now we're going to go back and remake government again. But it's because the very people in those jobs are terrible. Well, and it is the voters who are voting for these people, right? The voters aren't demanding a harsher county council. I don't think going to elected uh, fiefdoms, you know, remember how many patronage hires there used to be in those offices and how incompetent some of them were. And remember Frank Russo and George Gerald McFall. I don't think that's the way to go. But I do think that we need a stronger council to stand up to the harebrained schemes and, and rather than be the the thing is, they're supposed to be a part-time body, right? These people are not supposed to be their full-time jobs, but they do need to to question, I think, the reasoning behind some of the administrative you know, decisions. Maybe the way to do that is to elect them at large and make it an even number and require that half have to be from one party, half have to be from another. So neither one has a majority and they have to work together to get it done because you just don't have it. You've got you've got overwhelming Democratic Party victories in Cuyahoga County. So there is no nobody questioning it. There's just a couple of Republicans on that body. So maybe that's the way you do it. Elect them at large. You get four Democrats, four Republicans and let them put them into the into the pit and let them scrap it out. Because because if you had four Republicans on there, they would have, would have been questioning Armin Budish. They would have been putting oversight on all of this. And I maybe anyway, got to move on. Oh, go ahead, Lisa Garvin. I, I just, you know, I came out, you know, a year ago on the board saying that we should go back to an elected sheriff. But it sounds like I'm still in the minority on that. I don't know what the answer is, but I think I, I feel like that's an, an, a, a cheap way out from our failings to elect stand up people to the county council to do the job that the charter was created. I don't know. We probably should do a special episode on this debate. There's a lot to dig into. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the argument that a couple of Ohio legislators are making to remove the name First Energy from the Cleveland Brown Stadium? And is there a precedent for this? Laura Johnson, we should point out that was the site of a victory yesterday. So they're now <laughs> one and one. That's a good thing. Woohoo! What are What is the goal? The First Energy is a disgrace. They admitted their role in a $60 million bribery scheme that completely corrupted the state house. So what are they saying? So they want the name removed. They think that they should not have this bastion of Cleveland's pride besmirched with the name of First Energy. Jeff, Co Jeff Crossman of Parma and Kent Smith of Euclid wrote a letter to um, to ask that it be taken down. They said it's unfathomable why such a community treasure like Cleveland Browns would continue to promote a company like First Energy after the whole House Bill 6 scandal. Now, obviously, First Energy is not on there just because we like the name. In 2013, the company made a 17-year, $102 million deal for naming rights to the stadium. Since 1999, when it was built, it had been called Cleveland Browns Stadium. We don't have response from Mayor Frank Jackson about what he thinks about this, but he said, or from the Browns, but uh, Crossman said he spoke with a Browns lobbyist who said they had a conference call about the letter on Friday morning and they're not supporting a name change for the stadium. Yeah, I'm a little bit surprised at that. I guess because they got the contract and breaking the contract can be hard, although Crossman 
does point out that when Enron became what it was, they broke that contract to get mm-hmm. their name off the yes, They did. The Astros so. and very quickly. Enron's name. Yeah, Lisa, your, your town. <laughs> yes. And I actually attended the opening game at Enron Field. And there are some people who believe that CEO Ken Lay faked his own death and is living the high life on an island somewhere. But anyway. <laughs> but, but at least they're not saying he's living it in the stadium. <laughs> But no, I mean, okay, and, well, they, and they have they had a 30 year deal, but they're paying like three million a year for their naming rights at Enron. But yeah, as soon as Skilling and Lay and all those other Enron Yahoo's got convicted, that name was gone. So, yes, there is. Yeah, you can make a very and you can make a strong argument. I mean, they're, they've disgraced themselves in a way that that is unfathomable in many ways. Why should their name be on that stadium? I mean, the Browns ought to think about it because they are uh, like Crossman points out, they're a community treasure and they care about their integrity. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How many people live downtown these days and what is the goal some planners have for growing that population? Lisa Garvin, it's been amazing over the last 10, 15 years to go from 10,000 to way more than that. What's the goal right now? Well, uh, the Downtown Cleveland Alliance CEO, Michael Deemer, talked to the City Club of Cleveland on Friday and released these figures. He said they've reached the milestone of 20,000 downtown residents. They hope to increase that to 30,000 by 2030, so in about uh, nine years, despite the pandemic. Um, He did say, he was questioned, where are you going to put all these new residents? He said he sees room for new apartment construction apart from what's already planned and going on by using surface parking lots and and certain lakefront areas, although I don't know what lakefront areas he's referring to. It'd be interesting to know. And this, just to note, this was his first state of the downtown address since he was appointed in June. He also noted, and I think this was mostly observational, that it looks like about half of the workers who normally work downtown have returned, and he sees that growing by the day. And in my observations. I've kind of seen that as well. He also doesn't see companies leaving the downtown area. So that'll be interesting to see what happens. So yeah, I personally think 30,000 is doable. I think the big question is, where are we going to put them all? All right, here's the thing. He's not just looking through rose-colored glasses. He's got blinders on. And the the idea that half the people are back, that's preposterous. Uh, And Sam Allard at the scene did a very good story late last week that looked at Uh, I think it was the Center for Community Solutions using the exact same data as this guy saying there's 12,000 people living downtown. There's Mm. a huge problem Mm. in these numbers about how many are there. And if you've watched over the years, those numbers that they claim just keep creeping up. And it's like, okay, what's that based on? You know, you would think that the easiest way to get that would be from um, the, the, the taxing of, of people. I mean, you would know exactly where, where they're living and how many people um, the, the city collects income taxes from everybody who lives or works in the city. So you would think they could tell you how many people are there. But, but the idea that, that, that all, the companies aren't going to leave, it's just not, they're all cutting way, way back and some are leaving. And to, to pretend that the future of downtown Cleveland is business employment, is crazy. I, I, I found his speech to be 
to be as sketchy as Sam Allard did. So nice job, Sam Allard. <laughs> well, and, but you know, does that mean we question the occupancy rates that he quoted? He said that, you know, occupancy rates for offices are nearly 85% and apartment occupancy rates downtown are 85%. Do we question those figures as well? The occupancy rate for offices might still be high, but as leases come up, people are cutting way back. So you had earlier this year, a bunch of law firms reduced their number of floors and, and real estate professionals know what's happening. This is condensing. So again, he's, he's trying to put the most glossy look on it. He can, it would have been nice if somebody had been there to kind of keep him honest because it, this was overly optimistic. And the next mayor has a challenge here, man. I mean, it's the, what is downtown when it has far fewer workers than it's had before the work from home movement is here to stay. So anyway, we got to move on. I want to get one more in. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We thought it was ridiculous for the Hudson mayor to say that a creative writing workbook used in a high school class was child pornography. But now we have the official word. Layla Atassi, is it child pornography? No. (laughs) These writing (laughs) prompts are not child pornography. And anyone with an iota of common sense knows that. But now we have the official word from the Summit County prosecutor and the Hudson Police Department who released a joint statement saying that under Ohio law, a prompt about a fictional writing is not child pornography. But what will be investigated further are the threats of violence that have been made against school Hmm. board members, administrators, and staff at Hudson schools. So, you know, everyone simmer down out there about this thing. (laughs) The mayor created this. He stormed into the meeting and said, I talked to a lawyer. This is child pornography. Resign or you will be charged. And so... I mean, I'm not surprised by there that there's hate mail when the mayor goes in and instead of being the tempering, calming leader, you would hope he throws gasoline on the fire in a complete falsehood. So good for Sherry Bevan Walsh and the police for clearing that up. It is not child pornography. It's controversial. You can question the judgment, but that was just a ridiculous claim. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We are out of time. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. And thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.